0: Welcome to Business Rules with Peter Feinstein. Now put aside everything you think you know about business practices today and stay right here for the next hour as you're sure to find some surprises and wisdom to help you play the business game right. Now, here is your host, Peter Feinstein.
1: Welcome to another episode of Business Rules with Peter Feinstein. Every week, I seek to entertain and inform, and uh, and the great thing about it is, I get to do it with guests who actually get to do most of the work. I get to sit here and enjoy myself, and uh, and have a good laugh, and contribute when it makes sense, and basically shut up when it doesn't. This week's show, I think, is um, is for sure no different. Um, you know, I think to myself about dog training, and I think, you know what, it's a matter of life and death. And, um, and, you know, and then you might think to yourself, ah, come on, it's dogs, it's training, what can it be? Okay, so let's say you have a dog with, um, you know, hanging around the house completely untrained and finds an electrical cord that happens to be plugged into the wall and they chew through it. That's a dead dog. I mean, that's, that's fatal. So we're really talking life and death here and, um, and in, you know, really no uncertain circumstances. Um, The Norman Rockwell-esque picture that you have in your head um, is just not something that happens all by itself. And I am a multiple dog owner, so this is not something me just kind of spouting off. This is experience from, gosh, you know, 30 years of dog ownership. So you know, this is this is no this is no flash in the pan. Um, It's something where 99% of the time. Um, it's the result of consistent ongoing training and, uh, and practicing what you learn from your initial training. Um, you're far more likely at that point than to have a happy polite dog, member of the family, however you choose to have it. Um, and like I said, you know, I've got first-hand experience in this because um, I've got living proof. Um, and he's my dog, Hopper, and trained by our guest, uh, Gary Wilkes. Gary is an outspoken advocate and practitioner of what I have found to be in my multiple dog ownership experience, the most effective dog trainer uh, by far. Um, I think it's something where uh, you, will, you will gain just wonderful insights and certainly come away with, I think, a completely different point of view than maybe you've carried up to this point about dog training. A little bit about Gary. Gary Wilkes has more than 30 years of working with animals, eight in the humane industry in every capacity other than executive director, which means he basically you know learned how to run the place from the soup to the nuts and just didn't decide to run the place when they asked him. I have cleaned tens of thousands of kennels. (laughs) That's Gary. Um, He created clicker training for dogs between 1987 and 1992. He has worked for the last 25 years as a behaviorist and trainer. When Gary and Karen Pryor introduced clicker training to dog trainers, he had already clicker trained more than a 1,000 dogs, primarily by veterinary referral. Now, that number is around 7,500. Plus and growing, and ours for Hopper was a veterinary referral because Hopper was actually going to be nicknamed Snarler or Snapper. <laughs> <'Cause> Hopper, <laughs> Hopper is so
2: much cuter, and it describes him. He's this sprightly little miniature schnauzer. I grew up with one as a, as a child yeah. and teenager, and Hopper's unique. He's not that crazed schnauzer we all. <laughs> Think of uh, most people don't know their nickname is Hitler's Revenge. <laughs> yeah, Hopper was unique, and he
1: had a little bit of the snarly protective dog to it, yeah. and that's all gone now. Yeah, I mean it, it truly is, and uh, that's just amazing in and of itself. And I'm so glad that um, to continue with Gary a little bit, his list includes, um, his consultant list includes MIT, the Seeing Eye, U.S. Army Special Corps, uh, Special Ops Dog Training Command, and many others. He has years more experience using clicker training at the highest levels of difficulty than anyone else and it shows. If he makes a definitive statement, it's the result of direct experience over many years with many dogs. In other words, it's not speculation. It's not pie in the sky. You can literally take it to the bark bank. That's my uh, that's my things. Gary, welcome to the show. Hi, Peter. It's always good to see you. It's really great to see you too. And um, you know, I I know you now how you are now. And um, and we were talking before the show um, a little bit about um, giving you, who's listening, an opportunity to get to know Gary, um, you know, maybe a little more fully and, uh, and from a, a slightly different perspective, because by the end of the show, you too will get to know him as he is now. What were you like in high school? Like I am now. Uh, I think in high school, I was...
2: My father was a minister, we moved a lot. So I was always the new kid. That doesn't really mean much, except to realize there was no continuity to my education. Okay. And so in high school, uh, I was not... Well, I'll give you a vignette. My mom was, had a body cast on for a year when I was about four. And she didn't know how to deal with a rather active child, so she taught me how to read. She had a big illustrated dictionary. And we would sit in bed because that's about the best she could do. And for whatever reason, it clicked in my head. So before I ever got to first grade, I was reading at a much higher level. And that destroyed my ability to have a traditional kind of linear education. So one time when I was about 11, I think it was in the sixth grade, we had to do a book report, and I said, well, I want to do Moby Dick. And the guy, the teacher said, well, that's well beyond your reading level. And I s- made a huge mistake. I said, well, I've already read it. <laughs> so then he, he had to um, eliminate the possibility. So he said, well, but there are many other things in there, philosophical issues. And I said, oh, you mean the thing where Ahab, in order to destroy evil, therefore becomes more of a nemesis to his crew than the whale? What he didn't know was my dad was also a theologian, and I was the only person in the family who'd talked to him about this esoteric stuff, so I was, well, not ahead of the game, just eccentric, and I think it followed through high school. I didn't, didn't have a great interest in animals. When I was 24, I had kind of handled college the same way, and I was working two jobs, just to work two jobs. I come from Mississippi cotton farmers originally. I'm not hoity-toity in any way. And and the director of this shelter that hired me, his shelter manager quit, he offered me the job, and I said, well, Doug, I really don't know much about dogs. We had a couple when I was growing up. (laughs) And he just very matter-of-factly said, you will. And it was true.
1: <laughs> so the guy's name was Yoda, right? <laughs> no, it's actually Doug Fackema,
2: one of the finest men I've ever known—a giant, a mental giant, and um, incredibly squared away. So he was my mentor through the first three years of me having to deal in this very strange world and working in a shelter. So strange, most of your our listeners will instantly go, "Oh, I could never do that." Because it's such a strange world. Yeah. It's just bizarre. You have to really wrestle with a lot of ethical issues and practical issues. You want to keep your skin intact, kind of protect the envelope. Yeah. And there are many things there that are not pleasant that are – and you have to deal with it. Right. And since I did that first, I also had the opportunity – I probably physically touched 25,000 dogs in eight years. And under the most extreme circumstances – and I also worked animal control. That intrigued me. I knew after five years, I knew animals in shelters. I was never bitten, but I never walked away from one that I had to handle. And then when I got into animal control, that was about three years of my life. It was so interesting to see dogs in their kind of quasi-natural environment. What do you do with a German shepherd on the streets who's got nine puppies, and you come around the corner carrying one of her pups that you're trying to rescue? hmm And she doesn't like the idea. Yeah, not much. So it really put things into perspective very clearly so that by the end of it, I'd mastered that. I know you want me to catch a dog, I'll catch a dog. You want me to stay safe, I'll stay safe. So that in people's homes, when you have a dog charging at you aggressively when you come in the door, I know what to do. And again, I've I've been bitten once in 25-plus years of doing this by a dog that was released from a bedroom. That I had no I had no control. Right. And then boom, it's a great foundation, and very t- few trainers have it. And when I people ask me, well, I want to be a trainer. What do you do? I say volunteer at the worst animal shelter you can find, for about a year, at least once a, once a week, and do every job nobody else wants to do. And the main thing is, it's not so much about the skills you're going to learn from the people who are there. They're usually municipal people, and I was one, and there the, are people who are trying to get a retirement or they're trying to get a paycheck. They're not passionate in most cases. The advantage to the worst animal shelter is that nobody's gonna mess with you and you get to handle all of these dogs. And that's where the experience comes in. And the, uh, our culture panders toward the concept of theoretical learning. You just think about something and you can do it. That I have never found to be particularly valid. I play music and I was a commercial artist once long ago, you have to do the work. You have to physically actually do things to learn skills because they're all a combination of two things, and for our listeners, here's the secret. Behavior is a combination of information paired with motivation, and if you lack either one,
1: Bad things happen. You get variation.
2: Yes. (laughs) Although, sometimes variation is good, and that's what I... Yeah, it can be. Yeah, because (laughs) the information motivation kind of platform, the instant you inject unpredictable consequences, you get changes in behavior, which is variability. Yeah. Now, I'm going to hit you with a weird one. That's called learning. Yeah. Learning (laughs) requires variation. Right. What do educators never study? Variation,
1: <laughs> so there's its almost oxymoronic. Yeah. But we'll go from there. Yeah, no kidding. I mean, that's that's actually a, a long way around. You had mentioned—I uh, do that a lot. Me, me too. Um, you had mentioned uh, Doug and mentoring three uh-huh. years. I mean, is he the guy? The the mentor in your life is he the one that shaped, or is there someone else in your life that you would uh, th- that you would give that uh, that recognition or insight to us too? I think it was a combination of the people I was around when I was a kid.
2: Yeah. One time when I was ten, my grandfather um, was showing me how to safely handle a pistol. hmm And he had told me to swing the cylinder out to see if it was loaded, and I picked it up and I didn't do that, and he whacked me on the back of the head with his cane. <laughs> That's an attention getter. Well, it is, but it's also a behavior shaper because then when I was in in the National Guard, so I went to basic training, I never had a single time that a drill sergeant caught me doing anything unsafe with a weapon. And right now, today, in my own home, if I should pick up a weapon, I know if it's loaded or not. Right. And then I treat them like they always are. Yep. And my grandfather taught me that. So I don't think that is the standard of mentor, but being around my grandparents and their family and my mother and father, I think I got from all of them. I I would take the information from wherever I got it. I didn't use- I
1: think it is though, because I mean, it's a stamp of learning that you take with you and you manage to apply, I think in other situations because Mm -hmm. there is a critical thought process that's in place and- And see, I would say that. I think my father taught me to think
2: logically and analyze stuff and my mother gave me the reading tools and for whatever reason I learned how to read. So I've got all kinds of information. The beauty of reading is, last night, I'm doing a seminar in Boise, Idaho in January. Well, if you take the E off the end of Boise, you come up with the French word bois, which means small wood or trees. Yeah. And I looked at my wife and I said that and I said in 1625, in Paris, that was the primary place where a D'Artagnan character would have gone to have a duel because there was a special little group of oaks uh-huh. and all of the rakes and the sc- scallywags in Paris at the time, that said they went to fight because it was illegal to duel. Right. <laughs> oh, my gosh. When your head is stuffed with stuff like that, the connections are pretty wild and it's fun. <laughs> yep. But the more you expose yourself to... You start making connections better. And I think that's one of my strong points is that I can connect stuff that on the surface doesn't seem connected, but it is. Right. May I give you an example? When we come or, back. Oh, yeah, dang. I, I wanna, know. But I want to do it now. I want to <laughs> do it now.
1: <laughs> we will keep people hanging on for the two minutes. We will come back to that, I promise, after our first break. If you're listening, grab a cup of coffee and then come back to us in two minutes to hear Gary's insights. Back in two.
0: Find out what makes the most successful people tick. Keep listening to the Voice America Empowerment Channel. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com What if you could save 55% or more on your TV advertising? We're Higher Power Marketing. And we can probably save you at least 55% on your TV ad buys. Don't believe me? That's okay. Just go to HPowerMarketing.com and see and hear real success stories from real clients. Then ask us to show you how we can save you money too. Go to HPowerMarketing.com. That's HPowerMarketing.com. Exceptional media for less. That's HPowerMarketing.com. If you think half of your company's advertising is working, but you're not sure which half, we can help. We're Higher Power Marketing, and we help our clients identify which advertising works and which is wasting their money. And then we fix what's broken so they can get more bang from their advertising buck. If you're not sure which half of your advertising is working, call Higher Power Marketing for help at 800-300-9124. That's 800 300 24
1: Now you don't have to stay linked to your desktop or laptop. Take Voice America on the go and listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market.
0: The Voice America Live Events channel is here now to showcase your corporate, individual, or organization's live event. Visit voiceamerica.com forward slash live events at voiceamerica.com. Voice America is where you are and where you want to be. Join us around the globe as we broadcast live from some of the most interesting events available. Don't forget to view all our live events, including on-demand access to past events that you may have missed by visiting voiceamerica.com forward slash live events.
1: Find out what makes the most successful people tick. Keep listening to the Voice America Empowerment Channel. voiceamericaempowerment.com
0: Tuned in to Business Rules with Peter Feinstein. Reach out to us with questions and comments at 1 888 346 9141. That's 1 346 9141. Or connect with Peter via email. The address is Business at HPowerMarketing.com. Now, back to the show.
1: Welcome back to Business Rules with Peter Feinstein. That's me. Gary Wilkes is my guest. That's him. And, man, he was really hopped to share just before the break. So I'm going to be quiet and let Gary pick up where he left off. Gary? Well, Peter, here's an interesting thing. I
2: think it's something I've always done. I have a passion for it, and that is making connections if they exist. Yep. It's commonly said that you should never punish in anger. You should be even-toned. Okay, well, if we buy that, that's fine then in a completely separate meme, how about that, (laughs) one of them new words. Yeah. Completely separate thing, dog people will tell you that punishment's okay because mother dogs do it. Okay. And those don't seem to be connected. Well, I've seen mother dogs punish pups because I have the humane background where they might be in a kennel together, that kind of stuff. And when they do it, they do it angrily. (laughs) They're pissed. Get out of my face, bam. (laughs) So you have someone who looks at one rule, which is mother dogs punish puppies. And by the way, from my own observation, they do it angrily. Yeah. And then you have somebody else who says that if you are going to punish a dog, you should do it dispassionately. Well, that doesn't make sense. No. And so those are the kinds of connections. And I'm not going to bother discussing it right now. The reality is that the noise you make in the process of punishing your dog is irrelevant because it's unique and proprietary. In other words, you develop a relationship with the dog. So if you want to say, no, and then apply the punishing thing, okay, that's fine. That's not a dog sound. A dog couldn't have any instinctive way of reacting to kind of a, I don't know, petulant sort of no. Mm -hmm. And then if you scream it, well, okay, that's fine. That's a different sound. Um, Bobcats and cougars scream in nature. So screaming isn't an issue. because And when I spent six years in the National Guard, a lot of it was here in Arizona. I have seen Arizona wildlife, and I see how they behave. And you get a lot of insight from that, too. So part of what I do in my career is I take these disjointed, disjointed sort of rules or factors that people want to propose, and I try to integrate them into a broader understanding. Sure. And sometimes you come up really, really, really short. Yeah. Want me to give you the big one? Sure. Okay. Yeah. You look it up online, and they will tell... And by the way, for those out there who object to the word punishment or they're instantly thinking abuse, that's by an agenda and a plan. Starting in the 1940s, behavioral scientists blended or shoved together punishment and abuse. And so that now, 50, 60 years later, you can't say punishment without somebody thinking abuse. Abuse, right. But in reality, punishment is... The behavioral effect that causes behaviors to decline, weaken, stop,
1: and not return. So I'm going to interrupt for a moment Please because do. I can give real life experience to this rather than from the training if you'd like. the, the trainers. I can give it from not only a trainee, because mm-hmm. quite frankly, you know, Gary teaches people as well as training well, of dogs course. because you can't have one without the other yeah and in in my learning it's something where you know my learning to uh train hopper was addressed with like you know you say no once and you bop them and you're thinking it's like well what do you bop him with okay so gary walked into our house and had a towel And, um, or actually asked us for a towel, and we were prepared with it. Mm -hmm. And he rolled it up and began cutting (laughs) it down. It's always nice when I go into a home and they actually have towels. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, because otherwise it makes you wonder. (laughs) Yeah, it's like the Flintstones or the, I don't know, the Bodines or somebody. They might not have one. (laughs) And he's cutting the towel down. And Joe and I are looking at each other. My wife and I are looking at each other. And, you know, he's rolling it up and talking with us. and, And Hopper is, you know, eyeballing him. Eerily, or not eerily, but you know, warily, mildly threatening. I yeah, mean, when
2: Copper yeah. met me, he barked and snarled and growled, and he didn't <laughs> like me at all.
1: And then, just you know, Gary wraps now, a I couple s- of
2: rubber bands around this. So we now have a tube, about yeah. 12 and a half inches long, yep, and about four and a half inches in diameter, and it is soft
1: terry cloth. Exactly, it's a, it's a fluffy towel mm-hmm. that is rolled up into not a hard piece, like you know, like you know. Um, when hard-packing snow gets really hard-packed, it turns into ice. Well, this is like um, snow that would be powderish, but you're able to make it into a snowball, and you throw it, and it just goes poof when it touches somebody. I don't use anything that could hurt me if I
2: used it the way I'm going to use with the dog. Yeah. And so I'm perfectly happy. If you want me to, I'll hit myself in the head with a bonker. Yeah, me too. And I've or done it. Or I'll hit your head with a bonker <laughs> if you want me to. I don't know. And the point being is this, is you realize that the rhetoric of the last 50 years in our culture implies that any punishment is, of course, traumatic. Right. And what's happened is they now have extended that so that it's all about, about imagined harm. The minute you hear something, you think, oh, my God, that could hurt them. (laughs) But it really doesn't. And so my standard is far less than that. I have the whole dog to look at. If withholding punishment puts the dog at risk, it's unethical. And I use the same ethics as a veterinarian. And one of the big mistakes of modern life, I think, is to, to treat behavior and the physical body differently. Mm-hmm. So if I said to you, okay, I'm going to teach Hopper not to jump on me, and I'm going to do it by shoving a steel needle into him. Great. Everybody would go, whoa, what's that? Oh, really? Well, your vet does it all the time. <laughs> yeah. So there's a connection people don't make. Right. Why does a vet stick a steel needle in a precious little puppy? And the answer is to keep it from dying later because it gets some more dangerous disease. and the potential of death allows... And justifies the ethical use or application of pain, discomfort, even blood, in order to protect the animal down the road. So my question is, why would you have a different ethic for the dog's behavior if the behavior can get the dog killed? So that when, when I talk about throwing a rolled up towel at a dog, vast majority of people just hit the roof. They just freak. And you're kind of going, no, you don't get it. You Voluntarily whacked your dog's eggs off, whether it be male or female. Sure. In other words, yep. you, you did an elective surgery for your own convenience that could have killed your dog in the surgery, and you're going to compare that to throwing a rolled-up towel at him. Right. That doesn't make any sense. No. So I've, from the beginning of my career in the humane industry, it's not a movement because it's doing the same thing over and over again. It's not moving. <laughs> and... From that beginning, I had to have consistent ethics. And my consistent ethic is this. I'm here to help the dog. I'm here to give them a better life. And if a momentary or transitory unpleasantness will lead to that, I'm your guy. Yep. If you eliminate the momentary unpleasantness, the dog is, in effect, without inhibitions. And dogs are very nasty little creatures. They have teeth. And they get into all kinds of trouble. The woman in Tucson about a year and a half ago... She was in her 70s, and her daughter's dog jumped up, knocked her down. She broke her hip and died of pneumonia within three weeks. Because as we get older, if you don't move around, your lungs are really fragile. Yeah. And so you'll hear people go, well, the dog didn't know it was going to do that. Well, of course it didn't. But it's reality. If I had taught the dog with a rolled-up towel by bonking him not to jump up on Aunt Martha, she's still breathing. Yeah. And the irony of this business is that most of the lethal behaviors are entirely innocuous. The dog runs out the door so much that the people get citations for dog at large. And after about $1,200, bucks, they are broke, and they just get rid of the dog. Now the dog's in a shelter, and it's a runner. Yeah. Well, if the next person doesn't stop that, it's this never-ending domino falling. And eventually, third, the, all these rescue groups... Dog's been rescued three, four times, and nobody has ever fixed the problem. So what I do is designed to keep him alive, make him happy. And as you know, with Hopper, those first couple of appointments, this dog was threatening me, and I had to end that. Yep. And I did. Yep. And almost reluctantly, he wound up in my lap. Right. Because dogs are social animals, and they don't have a problem adjusting to somebody who is— tough, but
1: fair. Right. It, and I'm, I'm that. And, and so are you. That's, that is, I think, um, one of the things that inhibits people, maybe, I'm not sure. I, you know, I don't, I don't know what other people's Inhibitions, or whatever are, but they think, because um, I've heard people say, it's like, yeah, I mean, you know, if you if you hit him and hurt him, mm-hmm. then you know they're not going to love you. It's like, mm-hmm. well, guess what? And and Gary and I were talking about well, this It's before. very
2: difficult for them to love you when they're in the landfill. Yeah, if they're not, but if they're we, still breathing, <laughs> you have an opportunity to kiss their butt for ten years if that's what it takes. Right. However. The irony yeah, is Yeah, that's the worst. That dogs come from a very harsh environment. We have modified them somewhat,
1: but they're designed to take the hit, bounce back, adapt, and then they're happy. And even more so, it's something where you know, Gary and I were talking a little bit about the relationship I have with Hopper versus the one with my wife and, and Hopper likes my wife. <sighs> He really does. But the way you said that, it sounded like your relationship with Hopper versus
2: your relationship (laughs) with your wife. And I'm going, (laughs) okay, I don't know about that.
1: Where's this going? (laughs) But Hopper is my dog. And it's not something that I say with great pride and like, yeah, I made that dog my dog. No, it's not it, that. It's nothing not nothing, nothing, at all. There's no vanity. It's a simple statement of fact. And it comes about by the fact that Hopper and I have a very clear understanding of boundaries, what's acceptable. And he knows that he's always going to hear, you know, a a pretty stern no. And he's going to get bopped with the towel. And he's going to get bopped just once. And if he repeats the behavior, you know, two, three minutes or whatever later, no will come again and he will get bopped again once. And it's something where in the midst of that, he he, he completely changes his behavior and he becomes apologetic mm-hmm. and compliant and my buddy. Mm-hmm. And it's something where over time, And it hasn't been very much time. I mean, it's literally less than a year. And I can tell you that it happened a lot faster than a little less than a year because Hopper has been, you know, my dog, I think, literally since like last, since January. So almost a year ago. And punishment is no big deal. I don't hurt him. I don't abuse him. I love him. Mm-hmm. And, and, and I give him boundaries so he knows what to expect and what's accept, acceptable and what is not. And let me give another metaphor. You have a child with a splinter,
2: and it's becoming infected. And it's swollen, and it's red, yep. and it's pus and weepy and all that kind of good stuff. And mom has to take it out. But it's pretty deeply embedded. Mm-hmm. If she doesn't put the the child through a very painful, excruciating, tear-filled, screaming event, it's gonna die. Right. And in nature, these things happen. (laughs) Yeah. Because there are no antibiotics. So the mother may reluctantly perform the procedure, but without that, there's no health. And in medicine, for instance, my gosh, they'll cut legs off and they do all kinds of things that are horrible and nasty and protracted and take forever. So why save the dog's body if their behavior is going to get them killed? That wouldn't, wouldn't make any sense. And so it's not that I relish using aversive control. I relish the results. Exactly. And the result is that now, for instance, most people think that the goal is to say the word no and have the dog flinch and be scared. No, the goal is to not have to say the word no because the behavior doesn't come back. right. And I can, for instance, I can. if you have dogs that are frantically, violently rushing the front door when you ring the doorbell, I can fix that in less than 10 minutes. Yep. And that's across the boards, and I'll bet on that. So it's not even a matter of, of speculation or your dog's tough, and it's not. No, 10 minutes or less, and it happens every time, and I've been doing it for two and a half decades because I created a methodology that, that
1: achieves that. When we come back, we're going to talk a little bit about that methodology, but we're also going to get a little bit of a background from you and your opinion on, um, you know, maybe on well, we've talked a little bit about the double standards. Mm-hmm. So I think that um, I think that's probably uh, pretty well uh, pretty well looked at. But we'll talk about, um, I guess some of the effects of positive reinforcement and negative reinforcement. And uh, and we'll come back to that. But we're going to hit a break. Um, but before we go on the break, um, give, uh, give my listeners an opportunity as to where they can find you online, social media. I like- have a r- unusual Facebook page because it's content-driven. It's
2: not personality-driven. Uh-huh. And my name is Gary, G-A-R-Y, last name is Wilkes, W-I-L-K-E-S. And every day I put stuff on there that's thought-provoking or it's something that I know that most people wouldn't. So it covers the gamut from average pet owner who might be interested to really serious trainers. Last weekend I was in Jacksonville, Florida teaching about 20 professional trainers primarily and upping their game, but at the same time... Really, my goal has always been to simplify this so that anybody can do it. Yeah. And you've had great progress, but you're not a focused, passionate dog person in terms of, you know, taking training classes all the time. It shouldn't be that way. It shouldn't be that
1: difficult, and it's not. Cool. Okay, so Gary Wilkes on on Facebook, Mm -hmm. and we'll come back in two minutes and uh, talk a little bit about positive and negative reinforcement. Stay tuned.
0: Up to your fullest potential. This is the Voice America Empowerment Channel. What if you could save 55% or more on your TV advertising? We're Higher Power Marketing. And we can probably save you at least 55% on your TV ad buys. Don't believe me? That's okay. Just go to HPowerMarketing.com and see and hear real success stories from real clients. Then ask us to show you how we can save you money too. Go to HPowerMarketing.com. That's HPowerMarketing.com. Exceptional media for less. That's HPowerMarketing.com. If you think half of your company's advertising is working, but you're not sure which half, we can help. We're Higher Power Marketing, and we help our clients identify which advertising works and which is wasting their money. And then we fix what's broken so they can get more bang from their advertising buck. If you're not sure which half of your advertising is working, call Higher Power Marketing for help at 800 300 24 That's 800 300 24
1: Live up to your fullest potential. This is the Voice America Empowerment Channel.
0: You're tuned in to Business Rules with Peter Feinstein. Reach out to us with questions and comments at 1 888 346 9141. That's 1 888 346 9141. Or connect with Peter via email. The address is businessrules at hpowermarketing.com. Now, back to the show.
1: Welcome back to Business Rules with Peter Feinstein. My guest this week, Gary Wilkes, who is um, a true phenomenon in terms of Dog training, yeah. Roll his, he rolls his eyes as I whip out the uh, the the imperatives and uh, and all of the compliments. It comes from firsthand experience, so I know, so I'm actually allowed to say that stuff. So uh, one of the things that we said we were going to come back to was positive and negative reinforcement. And um, Gary, give us uh, give us a set of um, or just some insight into the consequences of the application of either or both, and maybe their integration?
2: The language, we use the word reinforcement, for instance, because of scientists who thought they were going to create a nomenclature that would describe behavior, and it doesn't. I'll give you an example. The word reinforcement in 1908, because I have a Webster's Library dictionary, in 1908, the word reinforcement was not connected to behavior at all. It was appropriated. Now, what it means literally is something added that strengthens, like the copper rivets on Levi's or, you know, putting a plaster cast on something or whatever, a patch on a boat. You're strengthening it. But then the language went south. (laughs) The term positive means additive in science. Right. Okay? And the term negative means subtractive. Yeah. So here's the literal definition of positive reinforcement. Since reinforcement means something added that's strengthened, and word positive means something added, you got a stuttering fool because the actual literal definition is something added, pause, something added that strengthens. And negative reinforcement is even more loony. Negative is something subtracted. So now we have something subtracted, and the definition of reinforcement, something added that strengthens. Uh, it, it, the, yeah. There they have two kinds of reinforcement, two kinds of punishment, and after well over twenty-five years, I've I've been an invited speaker at scientific conferences. I got a major reward for my ability to use this language in the general media. I mean, it's uh, I really I studied it really thoroughly. And it's just Stupid. It doesn't really describe what's going on. So if you say reward, what's the problem with that? I rewarded the dog. And we all know what that means. It means you're going to see more of it in the future. You could get really picky and say that a reward is not necessarily indicative of future behavior. Okay. But in colloquial English, who cares? I mean, if I say, you know, I really rewarded my child for, for doing well with his spelling, and in fact he's better at his spelling... Sure, that's cool. But the terminology of behavioral science is really distorted. Like negative reinforcement is the an event that causes a behavior to be increased because you are terminating or reducing the stimulus. Okay, so stimulus is Greek for to goad or prod. Uh-huh. And, and in essence means thingy, if you really think about it. <laughs> so when you hear a scientific Johnny saying, you know, a... Uh, Positive reinforcing stimulus for uprint variability. You go, okay, well I heard thingy in there <laughs> It's really that it's absurd. Yeah. It's absurd. So I would recommend to all those listening, don't get into that. Just talk English. And there are some great behaviorists over the last 50, 60 years who've also said that and just said, look, don't use these fancy. Unless there's a reason to have this special word, don't use it. Just use English. And English is the biggest, fattest language for descriptors on the planet and history. We got words for it. Babe. <laughs> so in essence, what we have is the attempt by scientists to create a dichotomy between nice and nasty, That's what it is, except behavior is rarely a dichotomy. And you can't describe all behavior in that fashion, and here's why. By the terms of behavior analysts, positive reinforcement is a process whereby a behavior is strengthened from some external event. Well, my Australian cattle dog, Petey, is genetically programmed to chase after cows and bite the foot that hits the ground, the planted foot. If you want to look this up in Google, you will just be amazed. And they do it generation after generation after generation. Yeah. Well, guess what? If you go out there with a clicker and some treats, which is very functional in a calm, quiet setting. I shape, I taught a squirrel monkey at the Phoenix Zoo to drink valley fever medicine using a clicker and treats. Hmm. So, I mean, I've, I've got worked with about 13 species and, again, worked with war dogs and everything else. I use positive reinforcement all over the place, but... You can't use it with a cattle dog with his instinctive behavior of chasing cows and biting them. And the reason you can't is because he won't take the treats. He's so focused genetically on these moving animals that you just can't. Right. So you would have to use something negative. And, the, the, and they do. These drovers in Australia, these are, this is the finest working cattle dog in the history of mankind. They can get kicked in the head. They hit the ground running right back to do it again. They don't <laughs> care. They're tough. Wow. But they're not allowed, and by the way, the behavior is called healing, where they bite the heel of the cow. Uh They're not allowed to heal horses with riders for a very obvious reason. The drover's up there, you know, rolling a smoke and sipping some beer. Whatever. Fos- fosters, whatever. Yeah. <laughs> and his dog comes in and basically gooses his horse, and uh-huh. well, that's not good. <laughs> so these dogs, though they are incredibly capable of taking punishment from a cow and continue to keep coming, when it's done intellectually, honestly, logically they, you can stop a behavior. And you do it usually when the dog is at rest, when they're not totally jacked up, because as the animal becomes jacked up, they're so aroused, they are not influenced by things around them. So if you take the behavioral science perspective of, oh, the way to get rid of a behavior is just to reinforce something else. That's stupid, and we all know it. This is the problem. If you start examining your own life, I'll give you an example. When I was five, my parents found out that Cleo Labonte, the piano teacher, charged less for three kids to teach them piano than the babysitter did for keeping three kids for four hours. My parents, in a totally not intelligent way of making me this bright (laughs) individual, stuck me in piano lessons with my brother and sister because it was cheaper so then when I was seven, I was in school, and they had a violin program. And I thought, and my parents wouldn't let me quit piano unless I did something else. So I learned violin. And then when I was 15, I brought a, I bought a, a five-string bluegrass banjo and found out when I got to college, you could get free beer for playing it. Yeah. But then there were too many banjo players, so I learned how to play steel guitar, ended up playing five instruments. <laughs> and here's where it's important. When the behavior johnnies say that you should teach an alternate behavior. Your dog jumps on people, well, by golly, teach him how to sit. I didn't forget how to play piano when I learned how to play violin, and you won't either. Right. So if you learn German, you don't forget English. (laughs) So if the dog jumps on people, he doesn't forget how to jump on people by learning how to sit, and now we have to play a terrible game of bribery. (sighs) I have to continue to make sitting far more interesting to the dog than jumping on people. But what if he has an instinctive bent like my dog Petey where it wasn't taught with reinforcement? He never got a treat to chase a cow. So how does this work? And the answer is because of the crazy perspective, really myopic perspective, and the crazy nomenclature, the average pet owner has nothing of value from those people. You have to look at it and say, no, you know what? If he's doing something you don't like, you have to stop it. That's just logical. right? Oh, coincidentally, the vast majority of dogs in this country are in shelters because of their behavior. And guess what? It's not every behavior. It's a few behaviors that are most likely lethal. And this is the question that will save them all. How do you stop a single behavior now? If you can answer that question, they live. And if you can't, landfill time. Yeah. Loved you while you were here. Yeah. And I prefer to keep them alive. And I occasionally brace these all positive fools and say, I do prefer life. Do you? Because life for these dogs includes a transitory, short process whereby they aren't going to like it. And then when they come out the other side, there's no need to punish because the behavior has gone. And Hopper's life now is transformed into that. Yeah. He's this happy little creature before he was
1: pissed off when people came over. Oh, it was just, it was brutal. Yeah. When we come back from this break, um, we're going to talk a little bit about answering that single question. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, and we'll, that will lead us to the end of the show, I think, because that's really the penultimate of it. We'll be back in two minutes. Stick around.
0: your better business. Achieve that goal. Make good on that resolution. The Voice America Empowerment Channel. It's your world. Motivate. Change. Succeed. What if you could save 55% or more on your TV advertising? We're Higher Power Marketing, and we can probably save you at least 55% on your TV ad buys. Don't believe me? That's okay. Just go to HPowerMarketing.com and see and hear real success stories from real clients. Then, ask us to show you how we can save you money, too. Go to HPowerMarketing.com. That's HPowerMarketing.com. Exceptional media for less. That's HPowerMarketing.com. If you think half of your company's advertising is working, but you're not sure which half, we can help. We're Higher Power Marketing, and we help our clients identify which advertising works and which is wasting their money. And then we fix what's broken so they can get more bang from their advertising buck. If you're not sure which half of your advertising is working, call Higher Power Marketing for help at 800 300 24 That's 800 300 24 spirituality, positive thought, current events, and even more about your favorite host. It's just a click away at VAPressPass.com. That's VAPressPass.com. V.A. presspass by Voice America. All access, all the time. Build a
1: better business. Achieve that goal. Make good on that resolution. The Voice America Empowerment Channel. It's your world. Motivate. Change. Succeed.
0: You're tuned in to Business Rules with Peter Feinstein. Reach out to us with questions and comments at 1-888-346-9141. That's 1-888-346-9141. Or connect with Peter via email. The address is businessrules at hpowermarketing.com. Now, back to the show.
1: Welcome back to Business Rules with Peter Feinstein. This week's guest, Gary Wilkes, and uh, we, were, um, we were ending the last segment with a question, and the question is, how do you stop a single behavior now? Okay, and so I don't have the answer, but Gary does, because it's his life. On the other hand, Peter, I actually taught you, not now, necessarily
2: by spelling out the criteria, And there's only four of them. Okay. It starts with immediately identifying the behavior. That means that the instant the behavior starts, or even a hair before, you trigger a word. Now, throughout history, we've understood this. We use the word no. (laughs) Stop. Stop, but no is the big one. Yeah. The second criterion is that what the event has to be considered intolerable by the critter or by the human not painful necessarily, not devastating, horrible, tragic, risky, that it is painted, simply intolerable. So my model for you is a cactus needle. I've been around Arizona my whole life pretty much. I don't touch cactus needles intentionally. (laughs) And so this is a natural model that tells us the gold standard. The gold standard is that a single experience that is not damaging, doesn't actually cause trauma, will then cause you to integrate a change in behavior that will benefit you for the f- future. Most people have experienced that, and if, they, if they're in Arizona, they never touch a cactus, go try it, see what happens, it'll <laughs> tell you what the gold standard is. Yeah, it's intolerable. <laughs> yeah, and so intolerable is the word. My thrown bonker is intolerable, because dogs hate projectiles, so do we. If somebody throws something at your head, you duck. Yeah. <laughs> So the intimidation factor is huge. It's more than just a startle reflex, but it's getting thumped in the head with something soft is incredibly disconcerting, and most dogs think it's intolerable. The third criterion is it has to be inescapable. Now, if you've ever been in a water fight in the backyard, you know that if you grab your sister and hold her in front of you, (laughs) you escape the blast from the super sprayer, right? (laughs) Yeah. Or if you... um, Let's say there's a dog that wants to bite you, and you grab a small child and put them, hold them in front of you. Well, then you're covered. That's funny, but not serious. Y- y- thank you. Okay. So my point being is that if you can – if somebody's got a squirt gun, they're going to spray you in the face. Well, that would be intolerable. But if you turn your head 15 degrees, it's not intolerable anymore. Sure. Right? Yep. So inescapable it is the same way. Is if you aim a squirt gun, you squirt it, and I close the door – I've just escaped the intolerable event that was immediately identified. And the last one is it has to be inevitable. Now this is best encapsulated in a phrase we've all heard, wait till your father gets home. Boom. Boom. (laughs) And so once you've heard that, you are locked in (laughs) Uh your room. Uh Uh-oh, what's coming? (laughs) If you can do those four things, the behavior goes away. Then, by the way, You can use positive reinforcement. (laughs) In other words, now that we've inhibited the behavior and blocked it for the future, now we come back in and we use clicks and treats and praise and toys and everything else. All that stuff they promise is going to create utopia that doesn't. Yeah. But you have to interact with the existing behavior because many of them are as instinctive as my cattle dogs desire to chase things. I got two Bengal cats. You do not chase them. Because I stopped it. So let me give you an example. A dog is sitting there, I have my bonker rolled up, and the dog starts to jump up on me just as he starts well, no, I will go back and tell the hopper story. Okay? I come in the door. Hopper charges forward at the door. Just sounding as vicious as the day is long. <laughs> and you're just, you know, screeching. And like I said, they call him Hitler's revenge because of that high-pitched squeal. And to be honest with you, I don't know that under certain circumstances that he wouldn't have bitten me.
1: Oh, he would have.
2: Absolutely. Yeah. And so the way to do that is I said the word no at the moment where I thought his behavior went south. And then I threw the bonker. And it hit him. Not hard. Didn't pop his little eyeballs oh, out or anything. no. It just rocked his world. And, yeah. he, and he went... Oh, my gosh, what was that? (laughs) And then I stepped back outside, end of repetition, because I want to transfer information very clearly. So then I come in the second time, and he's back 15 feet. He was at the entrance from the family room into the living room by the door. Right. He was already adapting. And what I did was I stuck with the behavior I wanted to stop, which was the threatening. So every time that... Hopper threatened me. He got a no in a bunk. And guess what? He stopped. Then it was very difficult at first. I would click, which is the signal for good, and I would toss him a treat. And he would, he would like, eat it eight feet away. Yep. I mean, he's way over there, and he'd gobble it down. And yet, by simply applying these two things, I'm going to reward passive behavior. I'm going to punish threats of sure. violence. Yep. And by about the third session, maybe, f- Oh, and the other thing I did was I pulled him in my lap. Yep on a leash, on a slip lead, which basically forced him to deal with me. He couldn't just stay behind the couch all day long. And by about the fourth session, he he was taking treats up close, he was doing behaviors like lying down and coming to me and everything else. It's not that tough, but the problem is that our culture actually blocks people from teaching this, so that the average pet owner has to really search to find somebody who has a real knowledge of this. What they tend to get is they get some guy who's rock'em, sock'em, which does work, Yeah. but not particularly elegant. Or you get somebody who just wants to shove food in their face. Well, guess what? You don't need to pay somebody to teach you how to shove food in a dog's face. You really don't. But they make their living by scaring people. Yeah. By saying, oh, well, if they use punishment, you got to stay away from them. Sorry, no. The exact opposite is the case. If you don't, know how to use punishment using a format like my four criteria, for instance, if you don't know how to use it, and so you don't use it, you put the dog at extreme risk.
1: Well, yeah, I mean, it's something where I can imagine from a whole host of things, not only the behaviors that may end up um, getting them killed just running out out of the house into traffic getting hit by a car chewing a power cord and Mm -hmm. zap or biting somebody that will get uh, them killed yeah biting somebody or I mean you could have an owner who has no self-control and has no sense no training and so no sense of proportion and they beat the dog to death Mm -hmm. because the dog is not behaving and may I inject something there yeah please you realize that that's not punishment
2: that's Abuse. Abuse.
1: Exactly. And And that's the difference. I
2: used to investigate cruelty. I was a humane investigator. I know what it is. Right. But right now, any use of punishment is promoted to be abusive, and that's all buttressed by
1: imagined harm. And and I can tell you from personal experience, that is crazy, because Mm you know what? Hopper knows I'm angry when I say no because mm-hmm. of the way I say it and he absolutely rock solid knows that when I get to the I get to the bopper he's going to get it mm-hmm. and he follows me oh, he, of course he's he, a little buddy I mean he's always there <laughs> he he goes with me and then gets bopped and he's like oh thanks dad
2: <laughs> <And> it's <laughs> strange because of our current perspective and yet the reality is I come from a world where I don't really care. I want to know what effect it has on behavior. So if being harsh, what's seemingly harsh with the dog, but safe, causes them to cling to you, well, there's a rule. Okay, so if I want a dog to pay attention to me, I need to put some pressure on them. Right. And then, in fact, dogs instinctively, they have to live in groups, they will instinctively suck up and get straight. In other words, they will avoid behaviors that have been punished in the past. That's a good thing. And they apologize. That's the
1: only thing you can call it. And and that's exactly it. And remarkably, we have burned through an hour of time. Yay. So we're going to have to do a second show, at least, mm. and burn through another hour where we can talk ad nauseum about all kinds of Just amazing behavioral type of stuff. Well, it's truly my pleasure. I thank you, Peter. And Gary, it has been a pleasure having you as my guest. And uh, I look forward to our next visit together. Thank you for listening to Business Rules with Peter Feinstein. Have a great day, and I will talk with you next week. Take care.
0: Thank you for tuning into Business Rules. Be sure to join Peter Feinstein for another enlightening program next Wednesday morning at 11 a.m. Eastern Time and 8 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Have a winning week.